Good morning. Uh, I may cough occasionally, but I do have a negative COVID test, so it's a really healthy cough. All right, so today, let's go to Psalm 2. If you have your Bible, flip with me to Psalm 2. Um, it is election week, and I felt like um, in light of that, it would be wrong to do anything else than to think about what Christian principles in a political period look like. And if you take this uh, talk that I'm about to give with the talk I gave here, um, I guess a month ago now, they feel like they complement one another. Um, the goal being to kind of meditate on the current period in light of the truth of the gospel. I hope that you will find these things that I've thought through um, to be helpful for reminders for you. They've been helpful correctives in my own heart just looking through them. So we are in Psalm 2, and uh, to prepare you for what the Psalms are about, the Psalms originally are the uh, book of worship for God's people in the Old Testament. They were meant to be corporately sung together. They were meant to shape the hearts of those who heard the Psalms. They were meant to shape their hearts not just by hearing it, but also by participating in it, by singing it, which is, of course, what we do here today. It's amazing you have to even make this argument, but we have this weird modern idea that modern music and lyrics and the things we sing don't actually affect us or change us. We've got to be like the first humans in history to make that argument, but the Psalms don't function that way. They are meant to shape us as people. They're really supposed to function a little like this. In um, my freshman year of college, I went to the University of South Carolina. Uh, large, very mediocre football program. Um, it's actually embarrassing how much money is spent on that program to be consistently average, but that's for another time. Uh, we would pack out the stadium, 80,000 people, that kind of thing. And my freshman year going there, you're, of course, of course, really nervous. You know, what do you wear to the football game? All this stuff. Are people going to care about me? Um, and a, a friend of mine who was a senior in the campus ministry I was a part of invited me to come with him. And while we were there, his girlfriend taught us the Gamecock fight song, which, um, because I care for you, I will not sing right now. But <laughs> lyrics were things like, you know, let's give a cheer. Carolina's here. The fighting Gamecock's all the way. Who gives a care when the going gets tough? Um, and the point of that song, one, you know, it invited me into the community. It said... Now that I know it, I am a Gamecock. I'm part of this family. I belong here. And being taught that by a senior was especially cool. Um, on the other hand, it also shaped the priorities. It, you know, what, what is a Gamecock? Well, we're a football team that, you know, we fight the whole way through. We're tough. We don't give up. This is who we are. It says something about your personality, what you are. It's a formative song. Well, this is how, on a larger scale, the Psalms are supposed to operate. Except instead of being about, um, you know, how you're going to make it on fourth and one, the goal is about how we live in light of God and as a community before God. And the idea is that, uh, and I'm, I imagine this happens for some of you as you come and sing here, uh, there's awesome, awesome music choices every week here, is that it kind of puts guardrails around individual inclinations that maybe aren't so good. So maybe your tendency, you come in and feel really worthless but you might be singing a psalm about your righteousness before God, right? And so your, your feelings toward yourself are being asked to change. They're being challenged. Or maybe you come in feeling great about yourself and think you're the best thing ever, and you have to sing Psalm 51 about your failures before God, right? So what the psalms do is they, 
they guide our hearts towards the Father, they guide our hearts towards truth, and they do it as a community. Our psalm today was probably a coronation psalm, psalm when a new king of Israel was uh, coronated. And you can imagine that the temple just totally packed, that the new king is up there, oil is poured on his head to show the divine approval and empowerment of the king, and then God's people, the nation of Israel, would sing this psalm, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good things you have given us. There are a lot of things competing for our attention. Clear our minds and help us only to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I work at the Stony Brook Boarding School, and for seven years I've been in a middle school dorm for boys, seven through uh, nine, and we have some older, seventh grade through ninth grade, we have some older guys there who um, are dorm council. A few years ago, there was this bizarre clown scare. Uh, some of you may, does anyone remember this? Um, there was this uh, mostly irrational, I think, grave panic about people wearing clown costumes and vandalizing things and hurting people. Uh, and uh, I would check every now and then, and there was no actual news that I could find that corroborated that this had actually happened anywhere. Uh, but it was in the water, and my students were terrified. There was like a week where it was just peak-level fear about clowns. Um, I read later that this actually very negatively affected professional clowns, which is another story, I guess. Um, but one night I'm on duty, and my students are just so worked up over it, and, you know, somebody's like, my friend said his friend saw a friend who did this. They saw a clown is out there, and they're probably here, you know. Uh, and the, they were so frightened that they just would not leave the lounge. Like, they didn't want to go to their rooms to go to bed. Some of them were crying. Um, and, you know... <laughs> So trying to comfort them and telling them, like, guys, uh, it's going to be okay. The doors are locked. You can stay here in the lounge with me. I'll, I'll be here all night if you need me to be. Um, I'm really good at fighting clowns, if that makes you feel better. Uh, you know, whatever. Um, and it was, it was a sad and, you know, kind of funny moment. But when I look at the current political landscape, I sometimes feel like my students at that moment. Uh, they had every reason to feel secure and safe. They were in a warm dorm. They had several adults who lived in there, uh, people who had their back. Their own rooms were locked. The windows were locked. You know, we have security, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and yet they were still afraid. And 
frequently I find I know that I'm in the household of God, right? That I have a good father who looks out for me, who's got my best interest in mind. But frequently it's hard to internalize that. And uh, when I look outside, as my students looked outside, I tend to see threats everywhere. And some of it seems really valid, you know? They've talked about surveys that just came out of, would you, you know, they've asked people, would you condone violence uh, if the other party's candidate wins the presidential election? And amazingly, right now, a third of Democrats and a third of Republicans say yes to that question, which is terrifying, you know? You've got major news outlets trafficking in the word civil war pretty frequently. And when I hear and see those things, I feel validated in being afraid. My fear feels rational and maybe even prudent. Well, it's tempting to look at the raging of the nations in fear. We feel so out of control against the tides of rage and anger, but um, even more frightening, I think, is that when I look inside, I feel like I have that rage. I am a part of that raging of the nations. I see it within myself. With American elections, it can be tempting to think, well, if we had the right leader, if we had the right president, then we would be fine. The rage, the anger would be stopped. If there was just the right person, then all our problems would be solved, and my problems would be solved as well. I think a Christian response would say, be to say that that desire is not wrong, but is so, is so often the case with us, it's inappropriately placed. There is no right leader or right president who can fix what's totally wrong with me fundamentally or what's wrong fundamentally with the world outside. But there is one true divine king who can. Our psalm today is asking us not to hope in any American or earthly leader, but to look to Christ. So we're going to look at three parts of this psalm. Um, we're going to look at the rebellion of the nations, God's response to that rebellion, and then the choice laid before the nations. So we start with the rebellion of the nations. I'll just reread these first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So our passage opens with a kind of reordering of the political world. Uh, the Psalms here argue that there aren't hundreds of individual nations, but there are those that recognize God as moral authority and those that don't. Now remember, this is a, a different time. So in the Old Testament, God operated through a political body. He operates through Israel. That's not true now. God doesn't have a nation, right? America is not God's nation or anything like that. He has a church. Israel is the church, God's people. That is God's people. But the Psalms argue here, what they're arguing is that basically there are only two types of actions. There are those for God and those against him. We can do something obviously evil that's against God, or we can build the Tower of Babel, something amazing, powerful, great, but ultimately not dependent on God. And both of those are set against him. This is a big part of Christianity, and I think it's the most offensive part, maybe. I have to think about that. I think this is the most offensive part. People in Jesus' day especially struggled with it. Uh, think about how Christ operates morally. He shows up, and if, if you were to say, hey, the God of the universe is showing up, I think your inclination would be, well, he's going to find the wicked, the thieves, the robbers, the murderers. He's going to do away with them, and then everything will be great. But Jesus doesn't do that. Uh, 
he seems more focused on confronting the righteous religious elite. Why? Well, Jesus' message is simple. It's that there are two ways to rebel against God. One is obvious. You lean into wickedness. You, you want bad things to happen to your enemies, to other people. You fight for that to happen. But the other is to lean into a decency or a goodness that is disconnected from God. This is the one that's harder to swallow, but the scriptures argue that there's only one good, there's only one way to life, and that's moving towards God, being united with him. This means, and this is all over the scriptures, this is not me saying this, Jesus says this repeatedly, the rich young ruler puts it on display for us. This means that if you build a life of success apart from God, it's empty and it leads to death. It's the true thing in the scriptures. There's only one place for life, and that's God. The famous theologian, St. Augustine, put it this way. He had this analogy of there are just two cities. There's the city of God, and there is the city of man. He said this. This is awesome. He said, we see then that the two cities, city of God and city of man, were created by two kinds of love. The earthly city was created by self-love reaching the point of contempt for God. Self-love reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. That's a lot, but what he's saying is that there are two ways to live. There's one where we pursue God so hard that it leads to a healthy distrust of ourselves, a recognition that I am sinful and fallible and I need to check my motivations and understand that I need to rely on other people. And then there's the other way of operating, which is I love myself, I am number one, it's my life, I can do what I want, and it goes to a point where you hold God in contempt. The obvious counter that you hear from time to time, my students will occasionally raise this, is so you're saying that a person who lives a decent human life, serves others, but does it apart from God, is worse off than, say, you know, an evil person who repents on the last day of their life. Hitler is frequently thrown out in that hypothetical. If Hitler has a conversion on his final day, is he better off than the person who is, lives a decent life but rejects God? And the Christian answer is yes. This is this is what the gospel is doing. It reorients us. It says the true good is life, and you get life from God, period, end of the story. There is no life apart from him. You can try all sorts of different ways. They can look good. They can be approved by culture. They can look evil. They can be hated by culture. It doesn't matter. There's only one way to life, and that's God. It's an entire shift on how we normally think. And the psalmist here is saying He's trying to say that those that are set against God are actually united by this. So this verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. When we get to Acts 4, the church saw this as referring to Pilate and Herod. Pilate, who's the head of the Romans, the oppressor, and Herod, who's the leader of the Jewish people, the oppressed. And they team up one time for one reason to kill Jesus. They team up because they say, whoa, 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 we're actually aligned in this. We hate God. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We agree on one thing, that God is not the moral authority over our lives, and we have to cast that off. In Romans, Paul gives us a really thorough picture of what the rebellion against God looks like, and what he does, I want to do with the psalm this morning. 
He argues that even though we have the testimony of God's greatness all around us, we suppress the truth frequently through our unrighteousness. He says that claiming to be wise, we become fools. We trade the glory of God for other things and worship other things. Frequently look for other leaders, right, to replace God. God and Paul ends with this vibrant passage. He says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It's a vivid picture of this same rebellion that's going on in the Psalms. Uh, And I can imagine that when Paul said it to a religious audience, and maybe some of the religious audience hearing this Psalm were nodding like, yeah, get them, those nations, those evil nations raging. But Paul turns it on its head and says, but what if this describes you? But what if this describes me? Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is supposed to lead you to repentance? It can be easy to look at this psalm and think of kind of the repugnant other. Yeah, why do the nations rage? Why do they think that a president will fix all their problems? Or why do they reject God's authority? Or why do they hate me? Or... uh, Why do they want things to go badly for me? Can't they just relax? Don't they see the truth? Everyone is unreasonable except for me, right? But I want you to ask yourself, and I want me to ask, I want us to ask ourselves, are we a part of that rage of the nations? Are we looking to the Lord's anointed? Have we spent 2020 fighting for gratitude towards God, or do we hold anger and hatred in our hearts? Are we fighting to love our neighbor and enemy? Do we feel like we're like losing our country or fighting for the soul of our country? Or are we reminding ourselves that in Christ, we have a heavenly country that we're destined for? It can be tempting to read this and just look out. And I think what we need to ask ourselves is, are we part of the nations that are raging against God? I'm speaking myself as well here. I, I don't feel like I've trusted as God as I ought to in the last few months, and I need to repent and trust in my true king, and I think we all do. Uh, When I was in college, um, I owned nothing of any value except my car. Case in point, um, I I was living in a friend's house the last six months before I got married. I had an air mattress, uh, and actually, I realized that if I, if I just kind of don't refill it, it gets really low till Friday, and then I can fill it up. And I had this weird, like, Friday's fully inflated air mattress day, and was really excited about that. Uh, somebody actually broke into our house once, went through all my stuff, and did not take a single thing from me, which is how few possessions I had of any value. Anyway, the one thing I had that was worth anything was my car. And I felt like what happened with my car was representative of kind of my ability to steward things of value. Like, I'm a real man if I can take care of my car, you know. Uh, And so there was a lot of pressure on that. And one day I was driving around downtown and my engine just started smoking. And I pulled over and I'm panicking and I run into the closest business, which was like a law firm, I think. And there was this elderly gentleman there and uh, he started trying to help me out. Well, at some point, to my shame, at some point during this process, I just kind of decided I didn't trust him and didn't take his advice. 
and things got worse because I didn't take his advice. And I remember thinking, you know, it's not his car. Like, it's my car. So it ultimately starts and stops with me. And things got worse. He helped me rectify certain things. And at the end of the whole process, I was kind of embarrassed about how it had gone and, you know, told him, could I, you know, repay you for your time or something? And he's like, I didn't offer your help, my help to be repaid. You know, I had offended him as much as I possibly could. Turns out we went to the same church. Uh, fun. Okay. Um, I spoke with my dad about this moment afterwards, just kind of processing. Why did I behave that way? You know, why didn't I just trust this guy? And uh, my dad pointed out, he's like, I think you think the car is yours. And if you thought the car was God's, I think you would have behaved differently. Um, I was trying to clutch onto the car and prove my value and knowledge and all this. And instead of recognizing that I had been given it as a gift, it, I didn't even pay for it. My parents gave me the car, you know. Um, I was a steward over that car. I think if we think our lives are ours, uh, I think we'll fall into that rage of the nations. If we think, like, I've got to cling to what I have now. But they aren't. We, we get a little sliver of time to steward our lives, to live faithfully, to serve our king. And weirdly, when you view it that way, I think it's freeing, you know? Uh, I don't know how everything shakes out, but God elected us to be here now for this period of time. And I don't think he chose to put us here to panic and to be afraid, but to consistently testify that Jesus is king and it's going to be okay. So God surveys this rebellion, the whole mass of humanity striving against their creator. And here's his response. And as some of my students might say, it's very Old Testament. So here we go. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. <clears throat> now, it might be tempting to see this laughter as cruel, like, this is a kind of temper-enraged God and, you know, don't poke the bear kind of thing. I think this is more like um, the laughter of just the absurd, it's, it's laughter at the absurdity of the situation, right? Of this group of people believing that they could somehow rebel against their creator. It's like chopping off the branch that you're sitting on, you know? Um, had a similar moment when we first started doing uh, hybrid teaching or teaching online, um, Forgive me if you guys are very familiar with all this, but if you're teaching with Zoom, uh, you can put students in breakout rooms, these little private rooms where they just see each other, but then as a teacher, you know, you can visit the different rooms and check on them. Well, early on, I happened to visit a room where one student was bragging to another student, and I happened to come in right when this student was saying, yeah, and I'm going to do great on that test because a friend of mine took a picture of all the questions and I have it and you don't. Loser. And the other student, recognizing that the teacher had stepped in and heard everything that kid had said, was like, oh, really? Really? That's nice because I think Mr. Barber just heard everything you said and started laughing, okay? 
I think that's the kind of laughter that's going on here. The laughter of like, you don't know what you have just done, right? It's an absurd, silly rebellion to rebel against God. And the absurdity of it is almost humorous. Uh, it's important to remember, as Derek Kidner says, that God's patience is not placidity. His patience is not ignorance. His fierce anger is not lack of control. His laughter is not cruelty. His pity is not sentimentality. When his moment comes for judgment, it will be, by definition, beyond appeasing or postponing. The Lord's judgment is not an emotionally out of control reaction. It is a just one, right? He is a just God who responds justly to his enemies. Now, notice, though, God's response here is uh, it's not just theological, as and is true in God's form. It's very personal. He says, I, I, I laugh at this rebellion. You want to know why I laugh at this rebellion? It's not because of this or that theological truth. It's because of this person, my anointed. It's always because of a person. The questions in Christianity are always relational, right? It's not, do you believe in God? Even the demons believe in God. It's, do you love God? They're relational questions. Because Jesus, God, meets us as a person, right? And so he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And for a long time, I imagine the Israelites, I mean, can you imagine the power of that moment? Like, you're all gathered together. Your king is being anointed. And you sing this out. Why do the nations rage? As for God, he sets his king up. Check us out. Here we go, you know. But if you know anything about the Old Testament, the kings do a horrible job. They don't live up to the standards God has set up for them. And the people of Israel began to see in this psalm a future promise, something looking forward. And sure enough, this is the passage that all throughout the New Testament is referring to Jesus. When it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It certainly echoes God speaking to Jesus as he comes up from baptism. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So sure enough, Jesus is the anointed and the rebellion is crushed by Christ. Uh, that terrifying Revelation passage I had us read earlier. You know you're living well when you're reading Revelation. Um, that terrifying Revelation passage we read earlier was uh, about that, right? Christ defeats the rebellion against God. That's what happens. So what do we do with all this? What's the application? Well, the psalmist does it for us, and this is where I want to get kind of the applications for us in this current moment. <clears throat> so we get this final stanza, the choice of the nations. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The passage ends with a warning. Be wise. Be wise. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Our view of holiness is really low, so a passage like this might be kind of alarming. But think about what's just been revealed. What's been revealed in this psalm is, hey, nations that are raging, you are setting yourselves up as an enemy of God's. That's really bad because God is really strong and very just and powerful, and he does, he does not let people pass on this kind of thing. Right? You have to turn from what you are doing. Uh, the high religious authority, the high governmental authority, all of you who have united to cast off the authority of God, your 
enemies of God, this is something to tremble over. You're in a bad situation. Your only hope is submission to God. And I want us to notice this. This is what's amazing about this passage. This is not just a call his shot passage. This is not just God saying, yeah, I'm just, and I'm going to destroy these people. This is a warning. There is a chance here for grace, for redemption. Notice at the end, blessed are all who take refuge, what? In him. It's not saying, hey, this God is just, and it's fearful to be unrighteous before a just God. So run, you know, get out of there. It's saying your best hope is God. You are running from him already. That's the point. The way to life is to turn towards God. It ends with blessed are. It's not just like, you know what, he'll kind of relent if you turn. Blessed are, like there will be life and fulfillment and all those things if you turn to God. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, not from him. He's offering a way to life, even to those nations that rage against him. He's demonstrating here the love for the enemies that Christ shows on the cross when he loves us. So what do we do with this in our current moment? Well, I think as we come up on election week, it's worth reminding ourselves that we're not Americans first, we're Christians first, right? Uh, Empires rise and fall, political movements rise and fall, but one empire goes on forever. One kingdom lasts forever. We have been united throughout centuries uh, because of the Lord's table, right? We have dined with Christians from all over the place, from every walk of life, from every political thing, and all of those things fade, but God reigns forever. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. I don't know what it looks like for you to express this in your own lives, but I think the dominant communication from us this week and the next few months should be that, yes, this matters. It does matter. This stuff matters, but not in the ultimate sense. There is nothing that can happen to me that can completely rob me of hope. There is nothing that can happen that can force me to make decisions that will compromise my morality, my ethics before God, right? I serve a king who is enthroned and lives forever. And the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, do people know that about us? Do they know that we serve a king, Jesus, Are we faster on the draw to talk about Trump or Biden? Or do people know that we serve a true king who offers real life? Blessed are those who take refuge in him. It's interesting that we're so willing to offend for our political affiliation and we're so unwilling to take risks for the sake of Christ, to talk about the king of the universe. His reign lasts forever. Uh, I teach Dante's Inferno, and one of the interesting things uh, in the book is, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a biblical book. It's hypothetical. Uh, Dante is this character who gets, to, gets a tour through hell on his way to heaven. And as he's wandering through hell, everyone in hell at every level keeps asking political questions about what's going on back on earth. And the irony is not lost on my students. These people who totally miss the big picture are asking these totally meaningless questions, right? He's like, (laughs) they are suffering at the wrath of God, and they're asking, like, well, did this candidate do or this? And the point is not lost on my students. There was something bigger going on, right? We serve a good king. 
And when that king returns, the question we have to ask ourselves, will we be found raging with the nations, saying, let us burst the bonds apart, there is no authority but mine, and we can build our kingdom now, or will we be found taking refuge in him? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that you love us, that we can take refuge in you. Father, it is so easy to lose sight of these incredible truths that you have given us, that you have bought us, that you've brought us into your family, that we are secure in you. We are so easily afraid of things that make you laugh. Father, show us mercy this week. May we see the big picture. May we see that you are king. May the people around us see that in us. May it make a difference on Long Island that there are Christians on Long Island who believe that Jesus is king and trust in him. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that you loved us when we are enemies. May we find refuge in you. In Jesus' name, amen.